0: Optical illusion! (laughs) Sam! Hello once again, your wonky and affable host Ben Murphy, I mean Ryan Luis Rodriguez here for The Chronicles Reconsidered, where we look back at past mystery science theater experiments and see what we can learn from their recent home video releases exclusively for you lovely subscribers here on Patreon. This week, we're headed back to the tastic 1970s to reconsider one of the most notorious experiments of the sci-fi channel era, Riding with Death, a quote-unquote movie cobbled together from two episodes of a short-lived and quickly forgotten primetime series called Gemini Man. It requires a bit of a format break because it's not technically available on home video, but is for some reason up on YouTube in its entirety. It's a strange story that involves huge names like H.G. Wells, Doctor Who, and even Will Smith. So pop that funky Nehru collar on your super fresh jean jacket and activate your invisibility watch, because we're going turkey hunting. Can you dig it? Our story technically begins in 1897 with one Herbert George Wells. Just two years previous, Wells, often regarded as the father of science fiction, had begun his professional writing career with the highly influential novella The Time Machine in 1895, The Island of Dr. Moreau the following year, and the year after that, The Invisible Man. Wells's story followed a deranged scientist whose experimental research into optics and the refractive index of the human body results in the invisibility of his skin, which drives him increasingly mad and homicidal. The following century, Wells's early output would be ripe for creative reinterpretation. His 1898 novel The War of the Worlds was most memorably adapted by the Mercury Radio Theater, run by another talented Wells named Orson, which disguised H.G.'s narrative about a Martian invasion as a faux-news broadcast. Then it was adapted cinematically by producer George Powell in 1953, which we discussed way back in Chapter 1 of this podcast, as the film that originated the name of Dr. Clayton Forrester and his iconic green eyeglasses. The Island of Dr. Moreau came to the big screen as the Island of Lost Souls in 1932 with Bela Lugosi, by its proper name in 1977 with Burt Lancaster, and yet again in 1996 for a real mindfuck with Marlon Brando and Val Kilmer. In addition to a straight adaptation in 1960, a sound effect from which can be heard in every episode of this podcast during our Time Warp detour, the time machine is deeply ingrained in the DNA of any film or television series depicting time travel as facilitated through mechanized transportation. But of all of his works to be disseminated into the collective imagination of popular culture, the one that stands head and shoulders above the rest is the Invisible Man just in terms of pure variety. It all starts with James Whale's relatively straight adaptation with Claude Rains in 1933, and gets progressively nuttier from there. After all, there are no Island of Dr. Moreau movies with Abbott and Costello, no War of the Worlds interpretations starring Chevy Chase and directed by John Carpenter. The Invisible Man has gotten around in the 120-plus years since being spawned from the pen of H.G. Wells, run the gamut from high to low culture, and back again he never stops being relevant. No matter what decade it is, people want to see men somehow turn themselves invisible and go batshit crazy, whether it's to test out the latest advancements in visual effects or to bust out the latest relevant allegory. Just this year, in fact, director Lee Wannell turned the character into a metaphor for society's refusal to take gaslighting and emotional abuse seriously to mostly great effect until that fucking ending. It's a concept that makes for countless compelling feature films, so clearly it would make for a great television series, right? After all, what is a television series if not a really, really long feature film with commercials? The first stab at stretching out the premise past its limits was in 1958 when the UK's ITV, CBS in America, aired H.G. Wells' The Invisible Man, a half hour series. Although the only thing that the series had in common with the novel was the presence of a man who was invisible, Wells presumably didn't take offense at being name-checked in the title because he had been dead for 12 years. The show debuted several decades before the rise of the antihero with shows like The Sopranos and Breaking Bad, long before the average television viewer was ready to accept murderous, despicable people as their weekly protagonists, so this invisible man was a decent chap who was simply the innocent victim of an invisibility experiment gone wrong, recruited by the British government for spy shenanigans that required the touch of someone unnoticeable by the naked eye. This took more inspiration from the third Universal Studios sequel to their Invisible Man movie, Invisible Agent, than it did in anything in Wells' novel. After two seasons and 26 episodes, the series was cancelled, due to a consideration of several factors. Ratings were not as strong as ITV would have hoped, but even if they were outstanding, the technical challenges of depicting invisibility on a television budget, an English television budget no less, were not easily discounted. There were some visual breakthroughs and genuine practical innovations along the way, but the reward doesn't outweigh the risk. And that risk was money. Nobody bothered to repeat that risk for about two decades until Universal Television and NBC technically revived interest in H.G. Wells' original concept for a new Invisible Man series in 1975 called, you'll never guess, The Invisible Man. Created by Harv Bennett, who later saved the Star Trek film franchise with Wrath of Khan, and produced by Leslie Stevens, creator of The Outer Limits, and Stephen Bochco, creator of Hill Street Blues, NYPD Blue, and Blues Clues, the Invisible Man followed David McCallum as Dr. Daniel Weston, a corporate scientist who becomes invisible while conducting teleportation experiments for a government think tank, because Harv Bennett watched The Fly instead of reading H.G. Wells' novel, and thought, eh, Same diff. Aided by his wife, Kate, and his boss, Walter Carlson, Dr. Weston would periodically go on episodic adventures for the think tank that required the invisible touch, all while tirelessly, hopelessly searching for a cure for what ailed him. And what ailed him was, he was invisible. Also, he had a truly unfortunate page boy haircut that made him resemble one of the Village of the Damned Kids. There's nothing you can do to stop us. The pilot portrayed Dr. Weston as more of a tragic, broody figure, more in line with the traditional approach to the concept, minus the indiscriminate murderousness, but this didn't last long. It's hard to explain to people that aren't well-versed in the television of old, but pilots used to essentially be open-ended movies that introduced a kernel of an idea, only to be drastically reimagined and revamped visually and conceptually by the time a series was actually ordered and aired the next week, much less over an entire season or an entire run. When The Invisible Man went to series, Dr. Weston was a pretty affable dude. Not smiling all the time, well, actually, we don't know that for sure because we can't see him. ZING! (laughs) But not a permanently gloomy Gus. It was also customary for well-established characters to receive major screen time in a pilot and show up the next week with a new face and a new demeanor with no comment whatsoever. In this case... Walter Carlson, initially played by a somewhat sinister Jackie Cooper, was now a more benevolent Craig Stevens, modeled on the Six Million Dollar Man's boss, Oscar Goldman. Like most high-concept action-adventure programming of the era, The Invisible Man was passably entertaining, sufficiently lightweight, and relatively forgettable, but like the 1958 series that came before it, its middling ratings could not justify its mid-range budget. The effect of turning a man invisible and depicting invisible hijinks had not become any more cost-effective in the ensuing 17 years. Although, Universal did utilize the Image 655 process, which photographed visual effects on an NTSC videotape at a time when series were still shot on film, but then edited on tape. This allowed for faster, cheaper production of effect sequences, but made the sequences more noticeable when they were transferred to film, unfortunately producing the opposite intended effect. When NBC canceled The Invisible Man in January 1976 after 13 episodes, they quickly decided that the show may not have connected with audiences the way that they hoped, but there was still some potential in the concept. So they did some creative rejiggering, stuffed in as much stupid as they possibly could, and just four months later, a pilot for another Invisible theme series was ready to air on May 10th, 1976, called Gemini Man. Ben Murphy, star of Alias Smith & Jones and sentient smug Grin, played all-purpose, tryptophan-obsessed secret agent Sam Casey. See that red convertible up there? Yeah, where about it? I saw a couple of turkeys sneaking out of the alley back there, and they put a stereo on a TV set in the truck. On a mission to retrieve a Soviet spy satellite from the ocean floor, Sam Casey is exposed to an unspecified magic radiation that renders him invisible. Because it's the 70s and we're still using radiation as an absurd answer for high-concept sci-fi shows. Enter Catherine Crawford as Abby Lawrence, Sam Casey's comparatively smart co-worker at high-tech government think tank Intersect. Abby invents an LCD watch called a DNA stabilizer that allows him to remain visible and grants him passage to his natural, invisible state for up to 15 minutes a day with the push of a button. Now, this raises some questions. First, shouldn't it be the other way around? Shouldn't pushing the button make him visible? Just playing by the show's own rules? Of course it should. But one must consider that Universal Television wanted to keep the basic Invisible Man premise from the previous show, but cut as much budgetary concerns As possible. This makes me wonder why they set up the story the way that they did. Just make Sam Casey a regular guy who has a watch that can make him disappear. Bingo bango, done. It's no less stupid than what they ended up doing, and it requires no extra footwork. Second, where do his clothes go? This is the mystery that has plagued Invisible Men since time immemorial. If you can't see any part of him, he's probably naked. But Sam Casey presses that button, boop, vanishes then presses it again, boop, and becomes visible. There he is, wearing that stupid jean jacket like some ghastly Evil Knievel cosplay super suit. So is there something in the watch that affects the visibility of denim? I bet when H.G. Wells was writing the original novel, he had just seen one of the very first Edison one reelers and thought to himself, I hope somebody adapts this someday and it involves a magical wristwatch. Third, radiation makes you invisible? Sure, I'll give you that one, but no lymphoma? No cancer? I don't buy it. That's admittedly a more morbid point, but it deserves to be made nonetheless. Gemini Man was, like the Invisible Man, an instant flop. Unable to justify its existence from moment one, only six episodes aired out of eleven ordered. The first time I saw Riding with Death, which was stitched together from two loosely related standalone episodes into one quote-unquote movie by the Universal Television Syndication Department in the early 80s, I thought, well, maybe it's not fair to judge the entire series based on the episodes that they picked. After all, even the best run of 11 episodes has peaks and valleys. So when I sat down to watch Gemini Man from the very beginning, which you can do on YouTube, although I do not recommend it whatsoever— I was somewhat shocked to learn that the first half of "Writing with Death, an episode called Smithereens, was the first episode. Not episode 9. Not episode 7. Episode 1. That's sending a message. We have a show about an invisible man, and the most interesting thing we could imagine and afford to write is a very visible man driving a slow-moving truck down the highway and talking to an affable redneck on CB radio. By the way... The second half of Riding with Death is called Buffalo Bill Rides Again, which is episode 10. The character of Abby does not appear in the episode because she was written out of the series by that point, despite demonstrating her usefulness far more than the Sam Casey character by designing the watch that keeps him fucking visible. In order to cover up for the fact that Catherine Crawford is not actually in the movie anymore, the editors keep her present through archive footage and loop dialogue, that accidentally gives the impression that Abby is dead and observing the events of episode 10 from some sort of nether dimension, cheering on her unrequited love interest. I always wondered why they would cut Abby out of the show, and I think episode 2 made it clear. Although Sam Casey and Abby don't have any chemistry together, I had gotten the impression from writing with Death that they were implied to be a couple, simply because that's how gender dynamics work in genre television, especially in the 70s. But in episode two, Minotaur, we meet Sam Casey's girlfriend, whose name I don't remember because I don't believe it's ever spoken out loud, and she's a character in the sense that she's in two scenes. And suddenly, Abby's eventual absence makes sense. If she's not with Sam Casey, she's expendable. She's just the girl, even if she's more interesting. Also in the second episode, Sam Casey proves his usefulness by facing off against every invisible man's natural enemy. Daleks. In an episode co-written by the author of Psycho, Robert Block, a crazy former employee of Intersect begins targeting various buildings in what is clearly the Universal Studios Hollywood backlot for destruction via robot explosion, and it's up to Sam Casey to... unplug them? Kick them in the shins? Present them with a conundrum that makes their logical circuits explode? I will accept invisibility watches, but Daleks are a bridge too far. And one thing's for sure, based on their clunky design, I owe the robots in Chopping Mall a huge apology. Not right there and surrender your weapon. Further episodes feature everything from Sam Casey posing as a bodyguard for a women's swimming team. Yes, that actually happened. Restoring a dictator to power to avert a civil war. God damn. And going undercover as an LAPD trainee to investigate an officer who may be a sleeper Soviet assassin. Ugh. But let me save you some time and a lot of grief. These episodes are terrible. Terrible. Were it not for people with far too much time on their hands cataloging all the heinous crap that made it over the airwaves in the 70s, it would all be justly forgotten. But something curious happened in 2019. After two decades of letting the Gemini man intellectual property lay fallow, Paramount Pictures released the latest film from visionary director Ang Lee, the man responsible for such masterpieces as Eat Drink Man Woman, Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon, Lust Caution, and of course his greatest achievement, Billy Lynn's long halftime walk. Lee's film, starring Will Smith and Mary Elizabeth Winstead, was an action thriller with groundbreaking visual effects, released in emerging formats like IMAX laser screens and 3D+, Plus, which is like regular 3D, but more. And it was called Gemini Man. Who are you? He's your clone. My orders are to kill you. You have 12 minutes to run. What the hell is all of this? Now you have 11 minutes. Mm-hmm. I don't want to shoot you. Fine. Mind. Mind if I shoot you. You had your time. It's my time now. Gemini Man, October 11th. Now, in the age of reboots and relaunches and alternate continuities, no classic IP emerges from the Hollywood machine entirely intact. You have to change with the times, keep up with the hip kids. The concept of a watch that allows an invisible man to become more invisible just wasn't going to hold up to scrutiny in the digital age. I imagine it didn't hold up to the Analog Age either, but we've already had that discussion. So Ang Lee and Paramount decided to just keep the title of Gemini Man and instead rework the entire essence of the property. Instead of Sam Casey, non-specific secret agent for the dubious government agency Intersect, our protagonist is one William Smithington as Henry Brogan, a very talented super sniper for the dubious Defense Intelligence Agency. Instead of dealing with the perils of invisibility and wristwatches, the very ordinarily human Henry Brogan is being pursued and targeted for assassination by a mysterious figure with supernaturally exceptional reflexes and stamina. Now, if you've seen just one trailer, or even a television commercial, or hell, the goddamn poster, you know that the figure pursuing Henry Brogan is in fact his clone. When you buy a ticket, this is probably a consideration in your mind. But the movie plays with this detail like it's three steps ahead of you for a good hour of a two-hour-plus runtime, only to reveal the clone's face and have that aha moment so the audience can collectively gasp and say, well, yeah, no shit. As a movie, Gemini Man is not tremendously interesting. Most scenes practically stop to tell you this is the plot, Go grab a beer, or take a piss, make your way back at your own leisure. The action sequences are occasionally dynamic, and it's always something to behold visually, just because Ang Lee is one of our preeminent cinematic stylists, but it feels like the entire picture exists not because there was a story to be told, although it does broach themes of paternal responsibility that Lee has been fascinated with for years, and has done better in movies like Hulk, but because there was a technical achievement to make. If young Nick Fury in last year's Captain Marvel is any indication, we've come a long way since the frightening face of Jeff Bridges in 2010's Tron Legacy, although The Irishman, which came out the same year as Captain Marvel, left a lot to be desired. But Gemini Man took an extra step. Because there are numerous scenes with both current-era Will Smith and Will Smith classic, and the production didn't want to shoot every scene twice on set, The clone is a fully synthetic performance. Will Smith did motion capture reference for the animators and had every single nuance of his face scanned and replicated, which was then de-aged, but it wasn't just a performance with all the years drained out. In every scene, that clone wasn't there. At times, it's a true breakthrough. Everything gets put to the test. Movement, frame placement, cutting, light, foreground, background, water, jitteriness... Eyelines, flexibility, environmental interaction, collision with actors, lip sync, fluidity, rigidity, reflection, expression. As with most breakthrough visual effects tests, it doesn't pass most of these tests with flying colors, but you have to start somewhere. You can't make an omelet without cheddar cheese. That's how that saying goes, right? The thing that really kills the effect for me is the flexibility of the clone. As far as I understand... Henry's clone is, for all intents and purposes, human. The only thing superhuman about him is the fact that he was grown rather than born. He doesn't have powers or alien DNA or anything, yet he moves like Spider-Man. I kept expecting him to shoot sticky jizz out of his wrists, but sadly he never did. I was also expecting a late third act twist that would explain why he seemed so enhanced, Like when he was being grown, they put a little animal genes in there just to jazz him up. Because otherwise, I don't know why they would clone Will Smith. He was a good shot and knows how to ride a motorbike, but I'm pretty sure you can teach both of those things. You don't have to go to desperate measures and start regrowing them in a lab. And then I started thinking, if someone made a clone of me, what animal would I like to be spliced with? I decided I would like my clone to be part seahorse, because then he could carry a baby. This would eliminate the need for a clone of a clone and he could experience the miracle of childbirth. And also, I like seahorses. Where was I? All oh, right, Gemini man. This movie bombed hard. It was the cinematic equivalent of shooting 11 episodes and only airing 6, making back only 138 million on a budget of almost 180 million without even factoring in marketing costs and exhibition fees for all the fancy IMAX lasers and high frame rate nonsense. It was the ultimate insult to the memory of the great Ben Murphy and the indelible character that he created in 1976, and... Hold on. I'm looking back at my notes here. Oops. First off, apparently Ben Murphy's not dead. My bad. Uh, second, Gemini Man the movie just happens to have the same title as Gemini the series, but is otherwise entirely unrelated. You know what? Uh, That actually makes a lot of sense. I'm sorry I wasted your time. Considering that this whole podcast is scripted, you would think that I would have consulted my notes earlier, but uh, live and learn, I guess. It is on that note that we end this week's episode of The Chronicles Reconsidered. Next Friday, December 17th, we have a deep dive into Arrow Video's Gamera box set. So get ready for a return visit from everyone's favorite turtle with rocket jets in his butt. Until then, take care and thank you for keeping this little cottage industry alive through your patronage. Special Agent Sam Casey will be back next Tuesday. We shall be closing shortly, but the news channel continues throughout the night. Dawn, that's the end.